Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 6, as we read verses 60 through 71. Hear now the word of God. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. We need our eyes opened, O God. We need our ears to hear, O God. We need your message to penetrate our souls today as only you can do. Will you help us, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> We've been looking at this extended sermon by Jesus that has filled most of John chapter 6. And by the end of this sermon by Jesus in Capernaum, which has taken up basically all of chapter 6, the disciples make this statement, evaluating everything he said. They think about the words, they think about the message, and their response is, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now the problem is with, the, with this message that Jesus has just preached is not a problem of clarity. Now, Jesus has spoken clearly, and they don't complain about that. The problem here is a problem of acceptance. They, they understand what he said. They find it difficult to believe. And Jesus sees it too. He sees this problem. And that's why he says, do you take offense at this? And the answer, he's basically saying, I can tell that you take offense at this. And see, other times Jesus is critical when they fail to understand something that he said. Um, and, and, but that's not the problem here. The problem at this moment is not that they are confused. The problem is that they are offended. They have pre-existing beliefs that run headlong into what Jesus has been saying, and those beliefs are in conflict with Jesus' teaching. And so what has Jesus just done that so many find offensive about the message, right? Think in the big picture of what he's saying to them in Capernaum. He spelled out the gospel of grace. He spelled it out in excruciating detail, making clear as, as possible that there is nothing that any of us can make that can make any of us favorable to God. There's nothing we can do. 
His answer that he continues to give over and over against, again, is himself, Christ. He says only Christ has life in himself. And so we have to go to him as our living bread. We have to have him as our substance. He has to be everything that we are, or there's no hope for us. Not only that, but, but he's also said that even our going to him doesn't come from us. See, everything in John chapter 6 up to this point steals glory from his listeners. Anybody who gets salvation doesn't get a share in it. They don't get to say that they did anything. Uh, we get union with Christ when we put our faith in him. And so God unites us to his son through the spirit. And all of us who, who trust in Christ come to God. And yet everything that we get comes from God and by God and through God and to God. And so in the gospel, God does everything for his people from start to finish. It's all him. And that, of course, leaves a great opportunity for offense. Because if God does all of this, then, then what is my part? What do I do? Where's, where's my share in all of this? You know, since we're, we're all still stuck at home, we're all still sort of eager to see life get some, somehow back to whatever normal was before. And so my children are at home and they're learning to live together and they've learned to live together for months now and they're going to be together for many more months. But one of the things that'll happen is our kids will get together, they'll play, and inevitably the older kids will take charge. They'll say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play this. I'm going to be the this and you're going to be the that. And inevitably by the end, that you always hear from the other room some squeaky little voice saying, but what do I get to do? What do I get to do? And there's this gut instinct that we all have that we should have some kind of role in things, that we should have some part to play. What do I bring to the table? You know, it happens when kids are playing, but it happens in everyday life too, right? We don't want life to be one-sided, where everything comes from one person. And, and as we've seen, the answer in justification is, we bring nothing. We bring nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what Jesus has been saying all this time. Now, it's easy for us to sort of look in, in retrospect, and judge the disciples here, you know? But consider just how hard it is that we find it when someone wants to give us something for nothing. Um, back in March, I was getting ready, I was anticipating that we were going to be locked down, that we were going to have to stay, to, stay at home. Uh, we anticipated that we wouldn't get to leave, and we were going to do a lot of baking. So among the many things that I decided to start getting at the grocery store was flour. I was very uh, insistent that I needed to find some flour. And so I went to Kroger and I stood in line. And as you go through the store, at least the way that our local Kroger was here, they had a sign up that you can only get one of everything pretty much. And you go to the section where all the flour is and it's all gone. It's all gone. There's not any kind of flour. So... I messaged my group of friends. I just said, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never been to the store and had them be out of flour. Flour is the thing that they have plenty of because nobody wants to bake for themselves, certainly not the crowds that around here. 
And I just was messaging my friends to let them know how amazed I was, and these guys were local. A few hours later, one of them showed up at my house and he had two bags of flour. And it, um, he didn't want anything for him. He didn't want any money from them. Uh, he didn't want me to pay him back later or anything. He just said, here, just have some flour. And I tell you this, I ha everything in me militated against that. Oh. oh, everything in me militated against that. I thought, I don't want you to, to think that I messaged you so that I could get this thing for free. I want you to know I'm not taking advantage of you. That's not the kind of relationship I have. I didn't want him to think I was a freeloader, that I was, look that I was looking to get something for free, that I couldn't afford it. You know, all of these thoughts are going through my head. Here's the thing, what's this really about? Partly, I think it's about my pride as a man. I want to know that I can take care of my, my family. You have that instinct in you, right? But really, this is all about pride, right? We instinctively want to bring something in our hands because we don't want to be in anyone else's debt. There's something awful about feeling like we owe somebody something and they've not been properly paid back yet. We worry what the other person is going to think of us. Think about how you feel when somebody gives you something and they want nothing in return. Has that ever happened to you where someone gave you something and they wanted nothing in return? You ever have that happen and then in your head you think, I'm going to pay them back. I'm going to pay them back. They don't know it yet, but I'm going to, right? We instinctively want to bring something in our hands. So think about how you feel when somebody gives you something and they demand nothing in return. You know, it takes a real restraint to let someone else pay for your meal, for example. Do you remember? We used to do this thing where we would go to a, uh, a place, not our house, but we would go to a place and we would, we would sit down around a table with people who weren't just our, our kids and our spouses and we would hang out with them and visit with them. And we wouldn't even wear masks or anything. We would just sit there. Sometimes we'd have drinks. Sometimes we'd have food. Uh, we don't do that, do that much anymore nowadays. But it was called restaurants. And you go sit down. And that's always the worst part of the meal, isn't it? When you're going to fight over the check, who's going to pay? Uh, again, we used to pay with money in person. We used to not roll up. There's a lot of explanation here. Um, um, so you ask your parents about it. If you're younger, ask your parents about it. We used to eat together. Um, but here's the thing. We just don't want to be in someone's debt. We, want, we don't want to feel like the other person expects something from us later. And guess what? That is almost offensive to be in the situation where the other person pays for the meal. The gospel is offensive like that. Gospel's offensive like that. You don't get to pay, right? In, in, in this sermon that Jesus has just been laying out in Capernaum in chapter 6, he's basically been saying, if you try to pay me back, I will be insulted. Do not give me your monopoly money. Just keep it, Jesus says. Just keep it. And the response that Jesus gets to that is for them to say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to it? We want to share in this. Don't, who can believe this? They actually don't even say who can believe this. They actually say who can even listen to this? 
This is an unbearable message, Jesus. The problem is not even that I won't, won't believe it. It's that I don't even want to hear it, Jesus. That's the response he gets. There's no way, no way can the center of my life, the focus of my day, be on God doing something for me that I don't help with, that I don't contribute to in any meaningful way. It just, it just feels wrong. And that's what makes the gospel that Jesus preaches so offensive because it militates against everything that we are and every natural instinct that we have. Here's what's so amazing, and I hope you see this. The very fact, the very thing that makes the gospel so offensive is the exact thing that makes it so necessary. The very thing that makes the gospel so offensive is the exact thing that makes it so necessary. This morning, it's a longer introduction than I generally give. But look at this text now. This morning, let's break this passage into three parts. Hard sayings, hard hearts, and heavy truths. Hard sayings, hard hearts, and hearty truths. Those are our three points this morning as we look at how Jesus is received, why he's received this way, and what we learn about ourselves as his disciples from it. So first this morning, we see that Jesus has hard sayings. There are a few levels to the offense here. Uh, I already mentioned the gospel angle that makes this message offensive, right? He takes away our contribution and gives himself all the glory in salvation. We just saw that just a moment ago. Another aspect to what Jesus does and says that offends the disciples, though, is this language he has used throughout chapter 6 of eating his flesh. Not only is everything about salvation from God, but he uses these physical illustrations to get, a, to get across the spiritual truths. The earliest Christians were actually accused of being cannibals. It was a slander. It wasn't true. But partly they based it on this language of eating the Savior's flesh and drinking the Savior's blood. And rumors spread amongst the Romans about what the Christians were doing in their secret uh, meetings together. Well, the reason is Jesus used physical language to describe a spiritual reality, and the way he said it shocked and surprised people. You can, you can understand why somebody who doesn't have spiritual eyes would not understand this, or at least not appreciate it, or, worse yet, just simply use it as an excuse to reject it altogether. I suppose it goes without saying that as Christians, we need to be accustomed to being surprised, being corrected, and yeah, even being shocked by Jesus and by the teaching of Scripture as a whole. I think one of the things that still surprises me is that many people openly just say they don't want to be a Christian because I disagree with what the Bible says on this or that issue. This is very common. Very common for people to say, oh, I don't want to be a Christian because that would put me backwards from the society when it comes to views of human sexuality, for example. This is one of the things that, that I'm so surprised is that one of the roles of religious texts is that the religious texts, texts tell us things that we did not know. But that's, 
That just, just at the bare minimum, this is partly why secular people are interested in religion, right? Because the religion says things that we didn't know before. And the idea here is that we don't go to a religion so that we can hear something that we already knew, just to be affirmed. Um, the role of religion, I always thought that was that there's something that we don't know, and we need God to tell us about that thing that we don't know. Uh, there are people, though, who have said, I don't want to be a Christian because I know the Bible says I shouldn't have sex before marriage. You know, I don't like that, so I'm selecting my religion based on what I already believe. Or they'll say, well, Lady Gaga says, I was born this way, uh, but the Bible doesn't make it, says, says that, that, that it's not okay. So I'm going to go with Lady Gaga. She's my philosopher of choice. But of course, if God says it, that makes it true. If, it, if, if we're wrong about something, then we ought to, if we are fair-minded, give it a hearing and then change the way we think. And presumably, if we're wrong, change the way we live. It is a mistake to evaluate ultimate truth based on our preferences. If we do that, we're not open to ever being corrected. All religion functions as, in that case, is a self-expression. So you go to a religion because you already have something that you want everybody to know about you. It's sort of like the way people wear a t-shirt so that they can express who they are. I once saw a child, wear, a baby, wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Now, I know that kid didn't pick that Metallica shirt out for himself. What, what are his parents doing? They're giving self-expression to themselves, and they're almost using the child as an accessory of self-expression. Well, religion in our age is becoming a matter of self-expression rather than something that we pursue out of a desire to know the truth. By the way, continue to understand it that way. When the world looks at us as Christians, and when the world sees the way that we see certain issues, especially around human sexuality, they think they're seeing our self-expression. They think that they're seeing our sexual mores, sexual views, and our positions on different issues as an expression of ourselves. Well, that's how they arrive at truth, so that's how they think we're arriving at truth. Well, it's quite the reverse for us. We are hearing from God. God is telling us what he's like, and he's telling us what we must be like as well. So we as Christians see things so very differently. But that's, if, you, if you're on the fence about those things, I would just simply ask you, what is the role of religion? Is it self-expression, or is the role of religion meant to be, let's get at the truth, let's find out what's real, let's ask God what he's like and what we're supposed to be like? I see the Bible as, as being something like a window where we look through and we see God and see what he is like. So if we come to God expecting to have our beliefs affirmed, aren't we really just looking for a mirror? Looking in a book, trying to find a way to discover what, what we hope is already in there. Well, that's not what the Bible is. It isn't there to affirm you. The Bible isn't there to show you that you're already great. That's not the function of the text of Scripture. The Bible is a book with a message that actually you are very wrong, and there are things that are very wrong with you. And if you want to be corrected, if you're a fair-minded person, then you need to hear what God says about you. If it's true, then the Bible will correct us. It, it will say things to, to you like, you are wrong and God is right. Are you ready to hear God tell you that you're wrong? 
The Bible will hurt your feelings. The Bible will ruin your plans, especially if you were planning things that God says no to in his word, right? The Bible will almost certainly tell you that you have done something wrong and that you need to be corrected. This is, by the way, very, very basic, but in our age, it's, it's news. It's news. The Bible will tell you that the world you live in is not the way that it should be. The Bible will tell you that there are things you might like to do and that the people around you may like you to do, but they are harmful to you, and they're, and they're harmful to your neighbor, whether you sense it right now or not. In other words, we should come to God expecting Him to offend us. Each day we open our Bible, our prayer should not be, Oh God, please tell me everything that I'm doing is great. If you go to the Bible like that, you are not going to understand what it says. Our posture should be, something is wrong with me, Lord. Something is not right with me. God, help me to see what's wrong and show me what your solution is. That's the way we should go to the scripture. That's the way we should pray. If something is wrong with me, don't tell me that everything is great. If I've got cancer, don't tell me I'm fine. That's the message of the age we live in. It's why it's a dead end. It's why there's no hope there. When we go to the Bible, we should pray instead, make me willing to hear the hard sayings of Jesus and believe them even though they're hard because I know they're true. The problem is with me. And since they're true, I know they'll be good for me. It's the hard teachings of Jesus. Second, though, this morning we have hard hearts. Many of the disciples point out that, that this message was hard to believe. And by the way, this is the larger group of disciples, not the twelve. And then it says that many disciples did turn back and never returned. There's a reason why the Jews didn't profit from what Jesus was saying. And, and we find out in verse 63 that it's because their hearts weren't prepared. In verse 63, Jesus gives an explanation. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. <clears throat> the flesh is no help at all. And, and, and by the way, one of the things that this just shows us resoundingly is that religious proximity is useless. There's a uselessness to religious proximity, right? What do I mean by that? Well, J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says all these people walk away after spending time in the real physical presence of Jesus, right? They spent hours learning at his feet. They followed him all over the place, and yet, and yet in the end, they didn't believe. They followed him from the other side of the sea. They ate the bread that he fed them, as they fed, that he fed them. Then he, they, they followed him over to Capernaum. They heard one of the most incredible messages on the sufficiency of Jesus that have ever been preached. And in the end, they didn't believe. Or, or think about Judas, who was here. He heard all of this. He saw three years of the ministry of Jesus. And, and Ryle says this. He says, if ever there was a man who had great privileges and opportunities, that man was Judas. And what does Jesus say about Judas elsewhere? He says it would have been better for him that he had never been born. Why is it like this? Jesus gives the explanation. He says, 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You can be exposed to religious teaching, and yet without the Spirit, none of these things will be delivered to your heart. You may even think about them. You may have a philosophical notion pass through your head as you're hearing these things, and yet it doesn't go to your heart. And we use this phrase, the hard sayings of Jesus, to describe trickier things that we maybe have trouble with from, from Jesus' mouth, but keep in mind that this, this, this phrase, hard sayings, is, is relative. In a sense, everything that Jesus says is hard for sinners to hear. Everything within us just sort of naturally militates against Christ. When the teachings of Jesus run up against the hard hearts of people, we call those the hard sayings of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that only one of those things is going to win out, right? Either God's word along with the Holy Spirit will conquer a sinner's heart, or the person will resist God's word and, and reject God's word completely. Those are the two ways that this goes. This happens this morning. It's easy to put blame for this moment on Jesus' words the way the disciples do, right? They're blaming Jesus. They say, this is a hard saying. They think the problem is with the saying. That's not the problem. It would have been more accurate for them to complain, we have hard hearts. That's the problem. The problem isn't with Jesus. It's with their heart. Someone's lack of belief says nothing about the truth. It says everything about them. It says everything about their own mental state. It says everything about the state of their own heart. It isn't Jesus' words that are the problem. It is the heart of the recipient. Now, there's another reminder here as well, and that's about the sin of backsliding. Think about this. <clears throat> the text says in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Backsliding is an old sin. How do we think about backsliding? Backs there are two kinds of people, right? There are people who are born again, and there are those who are not born again. Um, for each kind of person, backsliding is a different experience in a sense, right? Because a true believer is drawn by the Father. Jesus showed us this already in John chapter 6. We saw this last week. But the Bible also teaches that those who are drawn by the Father are secure. Because if you remember, what did Jesus say? He said, I will raise them up on the last day. So there is, there is security there for those who are believers. And God's word says he will preserve them in the faith. He will keep them believing to the very end. Sustained by God's grace, Jesus says. And what does he say? My sheep hear my voice, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. These are words of security. In other words, real believers who've been born again can never lose their salvation. However, the Bible does teach, as does our church confession, that they can go through seasons. A believer, a true believer, a born-again person, can go through seasons where they are troubled, where they are storm-tossed, where they even can fall into seasons of grievous sin. That can happen even to true believers, says Jesus, and says the confession. And if you're looking in from the outside, you might even wonder if this person is saved at all. Look what they've fallen into. Look what's happened in their life. But here's the truth. 
ultimately, God's people do persevere. They, they will return. They'll come back. They'll repent. They'll admit their error. One of the things we have to be careful about is we have to be careful not to assume that because a person is currently not walking with Christ, that they must be reprobate. That's not necessarily true. There's actually a, a comfort, there's a blessing in, in knowing that people who backslide shouldn't be assumed to be lost forever. We don't get to presume that. We should always remember how powerful God is to save. There's a certain optimism that needs to exist in our hearts when we think of those who are currently backsliding or who have backslidden. When we see someone who backslides, instead of writing them off, we should pray for them out of deep need and deep humility. <clears throat> now, backsliding is a different experience for those who aren't born again. Those who, who aren't born again will follow Jesus for a while, perhaps. They may be very interested in religious things. Maybe they even take the things of God very seriously for a while, but they'll be like the bad soil in the parable of the sower. You remember the bad soil. The seed falls. It starts to grow right away. Immediately, your first thought is, wow, that's amazing. That's stunning. I've seen people. Even people who came to this church as fired up as you could possibly imagine, where you're almost disturbed at how excited they are by the gospel, if that's possible, to be too excited. Kids, kids get baptized, boom, they disappear. What on earth happened? <laughs> there, are just, there are things that happen that leave you baffled. What went on in that heart? How did we get here? Well, the parable says that the seed falls right away. It starts to grow, but Jesus says they have no root in themselves, and so in time of temptation, they fall away. It seems like that's what happened. happens here. These people were disciples. They followed him wherever he went for a while. Then they no longer walk with him after a while. So, so baptism can have two possible results. For an unregenerate person, backsliding drives them further from Jesus, for the regenerate person, backsliding is a temptation that the Lord uses to shape and strengthen them so that when they return, they'll be able to strengthen others. That's what happens with Peter. Jesus says, Peter, I prayed for you so that when you are restored, you will be a blessing to your brothers. That's what Jesus says that the restoration of Peter means, right? And so it should sadden us to see people walk away from the Lord, but it shouldn't surprise us because this sin is as old as Jesus' own ministry. Third, this morning we have hardy truths. <clears throat> we have this beautiful shift from the rejection from a few moments before. And then in verses 67 and 68, there's this exchange. After these other disciples leave Jesus because they can't believe what he says, Jesus says to the twelve, <clears throat> Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's easy to get, go right to Peter's words because they're so beautiful. It's easy to go there. But look at what matters to Jesus. He doesn't ask them if they're going to go away. He asks if they want to go away. You see that? Do you want to go away as well? 
what we desire is important because our desires show what is ultimate to us. They show where our heart is. It shows where our heart is. It shows what delights us, right? It isn't just our actions that matter to God, but our desires matter as well. Jesus says, I know you're still here, but what do you want? Do you even want to be here? You see, Jesus is not looking for half-hearted disciples. He doesn't want people who are just willing to go through the motions because they don't know anything better. Instead, he says, do you want to go? He would rather they leave if they want to than for them to reluctantly stick around. He says, if you want to go, then go. <clears throat> This strikes somewhat at this idea of duty. Um, duty is a powerful motivator. And, and in my experience, in my experience, older generations are infused with a much more profound sense of duty than younger generations. And I'm including my own in that as well. Um, older generations will do the right thing regardless of how they feel. And in the life of the church, that is so important. That is so important. You know, there are segments of this church that I know I can depend on as a pastor to turn up for anything and everything. And there are segments of this church that almost always I know they won't be here, and they aren't. And those, gen those breakdowns tend to happen along generational lines. It is usually the older segment of our church that demonstrates a strong sense of duty. And duty is not a bad thing. Duty is not a bad thing. But a life lived only from duty or from reluctant duty is not what God is looking for either. Jesus says, you serve me. You do what I say. But do you want to be here? I am glorified most when you delight in me most. Do you want me, Jesus says. Faith paired with duty, delight paired with duty, is what gives God glory. Erasmus, writing during the time of the Reformation, says it this way, Jesus prefers an open defector to a contrived and counterfeit companion. Wholeheartedly follow him, or wholeheartedly reject him. But don't try to be a diplomat with Jesus. Jesus would rather you just leave. In Revelation, he says, Oh yeah, you're lukewarm. I will spit you out of my mouth. He is repulsed by the middle road, half-hearted, lukewarm approach that duty can actually lead us into. The real magic is... Don't want to use the word magic. The real beauty is when duty is paired with faith. When duty is paired with delight. The question is asked, and Peter does answer it. Do you want to leave? And the answer to the question is, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Peter recognizes something. If you leave Jesus, you still have to go somewhere. If you abandon Christ, you're not going to just stop believing anything or, or following anything. In other words, you abandon Christ, you go somewhere else. You can't avoid having a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Even the wildest skeptic in the far out corner of the world has a worldview. And Peter says, what else is there? Who, who else is there? I, I'm a man without options, Jesus said, or Peter says. This is something I believe modern people haven't really reckoned with, right? At, at the moment... In our, in our moment, in our culture, skepticism is becoming more common. We see, we see many people leaving the church that they were raised in. And experts in statistics call these people the nuns, not because they are nuns in a Roman Catholic convent, but because they're nuns in that they have no formal religious affiliation. But what are they doing in the meantime? They're not going to the mosque. They're not going to the temple. But that doesn't mean they just absolutely become absolutely open-minded people who don't believe anything anymore. They still have a perspective and they still have a worldview. And they still come from somewhere. They have assumptions about reality, about themselves, about what their life means, whether they have a soul, whether other people are valuable or not. Their worldview may be another formal religion. It may be atheistic or it may just be a lazy, pleasure-seeking, epicurean outlook. Maybe they're not very self-reflective. But it's impossible to not have a worldview. All people who abandon Christianity and the message of Jesus end up adopting some sort of worldview. I've seen it a million times before. Some guy stands up, oftentimes very well known. Uh, I had a favorite singer. I won't say his name. But I had a favorite singer. Christian. Reformed. Calvinistic even. Came from a Presbyterian background. Went to a PCA church. One of the most heartbreaking things in my life. After listening to him for 15 years, maybe even 20 years, he walked away from the Lord. At first, it was just skepticism. I don't know if it's true. Eventually, he got to the point where he just said, well, I don't know anything. There Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But you know he couldn't stop there. And now, to the best of what I've been able to discern, it's, it's open atheism. People don't stop simply at skepticism. You must have a worldview. You must see things in some kind of light. And so Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So in other words... He has a worldview now that is shaped by what he has learned and seen is true. And so he says, not only is there nowhere else to go, but there's nowhere else it would even make sense to go. He's God. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's everything their soul hungers for. As he said earlier in this chapter, he's the bread of life. Peter is also doing something else. I wonder if you, if you notice it. He's existing in the minority here. Many of those who listened to Jesus' preaching, well, they left. They said, this is too hard. Peter resisted the pull of the crowds. He resisted the judgment of the people. Can I tell you something? To be a Christian in 2020, you have to resist the pull of the crowd. 
You know, you, you know this already. You feel it in the air. You have to be willing to be in the minority. Yeah, there, there are many Christians in the world, but, but more than ever, there are many, many more unbelievers. There are more nuns. And, and more than ever, the things Jesus says are seen as hard teachings that some simply will not tolerate and they will not live with. Peter's right, though. Where else would you go? Every alternative to the Christian message comes up short of answering the, the philosophical, the historical arguments about the truth of Christianity. Every alternative to the Christian message leaves people running in a hamster wheel of works and spiritual insecurity. Every alternative to the Christian gospel is incapable of making sense out of the most ordinary things in life, like morality and logic and love. How do you account for those things in an atheistic universe? You cannot, not consistently. You could well ask anyone thinking of abandoning Christ, to whom will you go? And Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. If you withdraw from Christ, Peter says, you have nowhere else to take refuge. Jesus is it. His is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Calvin says it like this, there really is no choice. As soon as they have gone away from Christ, nothing remains for them but death wherever they go. If you've been struggling, if you've been, if you've been thinking of giving it up, if you've been having doubts, you've been having questions that you can't find the answers to, let me just say, answers exist. Let me say this, answers do exist, and you can ask. Reach out and ask. Don't just walk away. Find the best answers there are. In the 2,000 years of the Christian church, do you think you're the first person who ever asked a difficult question about the problem of evil? Do you think you're the first person who ever asked a question about Adam and Eve? Do you think you're the first person who ever asked a difficult question about God? No, of course not. And if you want to know the truth, then pursue the answers. The answers are out there. There are people who have thought about these things, and they've answered all of the questions, if you're willing to look. Here's the encouragement. Follow Jesus. There's no social capital in it. There's very little admiration from the world. You know, nobody's going to, uh, from outside the church, is going to think, oh, how brave you are for resisting the cultural flow. But do you know what? When you have Jesus, you have what matters. The refuge of the only Son of God, shelter from the storm of your own sin, and security in heaven forever. There is no contest. There is no one else to whom we shall go. Let's pray. Father, you sent your very own Son into this world. You sent your own Holy One for the sake of us all. How could you not with him freely give us all things? Would you stir our hearts today? We need to know you and to know your Son. Will you be our strength and our shield, our God in whom we trust? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.